Chapter 4, Part 1 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay, Volume 2, Chapter 4, Haunted Houses, Part 1. Here's a knocking indeed. Knock, knock, knock. Who's there? In the name of Beelzebub. Who's there? In the devil's name. Knock, knock, knock. Never at quiet. Macbeth. Who has not either seen or heard of some house shut up and uninhabitable, fallen into decay and looking dusty and dreary, from which at midnight strange sounds have been heard to issue, aerial knockings, the rattling of chains, and the groaning of perturbed spirits, a house that people have thought it unsafe to pass after dark, and which has remained for years without a tenant, and which no tenant would occupy, even were he paid to do so. There are hundreds of such houses in England at the present day, hundreds in France, Germany, and almost every country in Europe which are marked with the mark of fear, places for the timid to avoid, and the pious to bless themselves at, and ask protection from as they pass, the abodes of ghosts and evil spirits, there are many such houses in London, and if any vain boaster of the march of intellect would but take the trouble to find them out and count them, he would be convinced that intellect must yet make some enormous strides before such old superstitions can be eradicated. The idea that such houses exist is a remnant of the witch-creed, which merits separate notice from its comparative harmlessness and from its being not so much a madness as a folly of the people. Unlike other notions that sprang from the belief in witchcraft, and which we have already dwelt upon at sufficient length, it has sent no wretches to the stake or the gibbet, and but a few to the pillory only. Many houses have been condemned as haunted and avoided by the weak and credulous from circumstances the most trifling in themselves, and which only wanted a vigorous mind to clear up at once and dissipate all alarm. A house in Aix-la-Chapelle, a large desolate-looking building, remained uninhabited for five years on account of the mysterious knockings that there were heard within it at all hours of the day and night. Nobody could account for the noises, and the fear became at last so excessive that the persons who inhabited the houses on either side relinquished their tenancy and went to reside in other quarters of the town, where there was less chance of interruption from evil spirits. From being so long without an inhabitant, the house at last grew so ruinous so dingy and so miserable in its outward appearance 
and so like the place that ghosts might be supposed to haunt, that few persons cared to go past it after sunset. The knocking that was heard in one of the upper rooms was not very loud, but it was very regular. The gossips of the neighborhood asserted that they often heard groans from the cellars, and saw lights moved about from one window to another immediately after the midnight bell had tolled. Spectres in white habiliments were reported to have jibed and chattered from the windows. But all these stories could bear no investigation. The knocking, however, was a fact which no one could dispute, and several ineffectual attempts were made by the proprietor to discover the cause. The rooms were sprinkled with holy water. The evil spirits were commanded in due form by a priest to depart thence to the Red Sea, but the knocking still continued in spite of all that could be done in that way. Accident at last discovered the cause and restored tranquility to the neighborhood. The proprietor, who suffered not only in his mind but in his pocket, had sold the building at a ruinously small price to get rid of all future annoyance. The new proprietor was standing in a room on the first floor when he heard the door driven to at the bottom with a considerable noise, and then fly open immediately, about two inches and no more. He stood still a minute and watched, and the same thing occurred a second and a third time. He examined the door attentively, and all the mystery was unraveled. The latch of the door was broken, so that it could not be fastened, and it swung chiefly upon the bottom hinge. Immediately opposite was a window in which one pane of glass was broken, and when the wind was in a certain quarter, the draft of air was so strong that it blew the door to with some violence. There being no latch, it swung open again, and, when there was a fresh gust, was again blown to. The new proprietor lost no time in sending for a glazier, and the mysterious noises ceased forever. The house was replastered and repainted, and once more regained its lost good name. It was not before two or three years, however, that it was thoroughly established in popular favor and many persons even then would always avoid passing it if they could reach their destination by any other street. A similar story is narrated by Sir Walter Scott in his Letters on Demonology and Witchcraft, the hero of which was a gentleman of birth and distinction, well known in the political world. Shortly after he succeeded to his title and estates, there was a rumor among the servants concerning a strange noise that used to be heard at night in the family mansion, and the cause of which no one could ascertain. The gentleman resolved to discover it himself, and to watch for that purpose with a domestic who had grown old in the family, and who, like the rest, had whispered strange things about the knocking having begun immediately upon the death of his old master. These two watched until the noise was heard, and at last traced it to a small storeroom, used as a place for keeping provisions of various kinds for the family, 
and of which the old butler had the key. They entered this place, and remained for some time without hearing the noises which they had traced thither. At length the sound was heard, but much lower than it seemed to be while they were farther off, and their imaginations were more excited. They then discovered the cause without difficulty. A rat, caught in an old-fashioned trap, had occasioned the noise by its efforts to escape, in which it was able to raise the trap-door of its prison to a certain height, but was then obliged to drop it. The noise of the fall resounding through the house had occasioned the mysterious rumors, which, but for the investigation of the proprietor, would in all probability have acquired so bad a name for the dwelling that no servants would have inhabited it. The circumstance was told to Sir Walter Scott by the gentleman to whom it happened. St. Louis But in general, houses that have acquired this character have been more indebted for it to the roguery of living men than to accidents like these. Six monks played off a clever trick of the kind upon that worthy king, Louis, whose piety has procured him in the annals of his own country the designation of the saint. Having heard his confessor speak in terms of warm eulogy of the goodness and learning of the monks of the order of St. Bruno, he expressed his wish to establish a community of them near Paris. Bernard de la Tour, the superior, sent six of the brethren, and the king gave them a handsome house to live in in the village of Chantilly. It so happened that from their windows they had a very fine view of the ancient palace of Vauvert, which had been built for a royal residence by King Robert, but deserted for many years. The worthy monks thought the palace would just suit them, but their modesty was so excessive that they were ashamed to ask the king for a grant of it in due form. This difficulty was not to be overcome, and the monks set their ingenuity to work to discover another plan. The palace of Vauvert had never labored under any imputation upon its character until they became its neighbors, but somehow or other it almost immediately afterwards began to acquire a bad name. Frightful shrieks were heard to proceed from it at night. Blue, red, and green lights were suddenly seen to glimmer from the windows, and as suddenly to disappear. A clanking of chains was heard, and the howling as of persons in great pain. These disturbances continued for several months, to the great terror of all the country round, and even of the pious King Louis, to whom, at Paris, all the rumors were regularly carried with whole heaps of additions that accumulated on the way. At last a great specter, clothed all in pea-green, with a long white beard and a serpent's tail, took his station regularly at midnight in the principal window of the palace and howled fearfully, and shook his fists at the passengers. The six monks at Chantilly, to whom all these things were duly narrated, 
were exceedingly wrath that the devil should play such antics right opposite their dwelling, and hinted to the commissioners sent down by St. Louis to investigate the matter, that if they were allowed to inhabit the palace, they would very soon make a clearance of the evil spirits. The king was quite charmed with their piety, and expressed to them how grateful he felt for their disinterestedness. A deed was forthwith drawn up, the royal sign manual was affixed to it, and the palace of Volver became the property of the monks of St. Bruno. The deed is dated 1259. The disturbances ceased immediately, the lights disappeared, and the green ghost, so said the monks, was laid at rest forever under the waves of the Red Sea. In the year 1580, one Kiel Blocher had taken the lease of a house in the suburbs of Tours, but repenting him of his bargain with the landlord, Peter Piquet, he endeavored to prevail upon him to cancel the agreement. Peter, however, was satisfied with his tenant and his terms, and would listen to no compromise. Very shortly afterwards the rumor was spread all over Tours that the house of Kiel Blocher was haunted. Kiel himself asserted that he verily believed his house to be the general rendezvous of all the witches and evil spirits of France. The noise they made was awful, and quite prevented him from sleeping. They knocked against the wall, howled in the chimneys, and broke his window-glass, scattered his pots and pans all over his kitchen, and set his chairs and tables a-dancing the whole night through. Crowds of persons assembled round the house to hear the mysterious noises, and the bricks were observed to detach themselves from the wall and fall into the streets upon the heads of those who had not said their paternoster before coming out in the morning. These things having continued for some time, Kiel Blocher made his complaint to the civil court of Tours, and Peter Piquet was summoned to shew cause why the lease should not be annulled. Poor Peter could make no defense, and the court unanimously agreed that no lease could hold under such circumstances, and annulled it accordingly, condemning the unlucky owner to all the expenses of the suit. Peter appealed to the Parliament of Paris, and after a long examination, the Parliament confirmed the lease. Not, said the judge, because it has been fully and satisfactorily proved that the house is troubled by evil spirits, but that there was an informality in the proceedings before the civil court of Tours that rendered its decision null and of no effect. A similar cause was tried before the Parliament of Bordeaux in the year 1595, relative to a house in that city which was sorely troubled by evil spirits. The Parliament appointed certain ecclesiastics to examine and report to them, and on the report in the affirmative that the house was haunted, the lease was annulled and the tenant absolved from all payment of rent and taxes. One of the best stories of a haunted house is that of the royal palace of Woodstock. In the year 1649, when the commissioners sent from London by the Long Parliament to take possession of it, 
and efface all the emblems of royalty about it, were fairly driven out by their fear of the devil, and the annoyances they suffered from a roguish cavalier who played the imp to admiration. The commissioners, dreading at that time no devil, arrived at Woodstock on the 13th of October, 1649. They took up their lodgings in the late king's apartments, turned the beautiful bedrooms and withdrawing rooms into kitchens and sculleries, the council hall into a brew house, and made the dining room a place to keep firewood in. They pulled down all the insignia of royal state and treated with the utmost indignity everything that recalled to their memory the name or the majesty of Charles Stuart. One Giles Sharp accompanied them in the capacity of clerk and seconded their efforts, apparently with the greatest zeal. He aided them to uproot a noble old tree, merely because it was called the king's oak, and tossed the fragments into the dining-room to make cheerful fires for the commissioners. During the first two days they heard some strange noises about the house, but they paid no great attention to them. On the third, however, they began to suspect they had got into bad company, for they heard, as they thought, a supernatural dog under their bed, which gnawed their bedclothes. On the next day the chairs and tables began to dance, apparently of their own accord. On the fifth day something came into the bedchamber, and walked up and down, and fetching the warming-pan out of the withdrawing-room, made so much noise with it that they thought five church-bells were ringing in their ears. On the sixth day the plates and dishes were thrown up and down the dining-room. On the seventh they penetrated into the bedroom in company with several logs of wood, and usurped the soft pillows intended for the commissioners. On the eighth and ninth nights there was a cessation of hostilities, but on the tenth the bricks in the chimneys became locomotive, and rattled and danced about the floors, and round the heads of the commissioners, all the night long. On the eleventh the demon ran away with their breeches, and on the twelfth filled their beds so full of pewter platters that they could not get into them. On the thirteenth night the glass became unaccountably seized with a fit of cracking, and fell into shivers in all parts of the house. On the fourteenth there was a noise as if forty pieces of artillery had been fired off, and a shower of pebble-stones, which so alarmed the commissioners that, struck with great horror, they cried out to one another for help. They first of all tried the efficacy of prayers to drive away the evil spirits, but these proving unavailing they began seriously to reflect whether it would not be much better to leave the place altogether to the devils that inhabited it. They ultimately resolved, however, to try it a little longer, and having craved forgiveness of all their sins, betook themselves to bed. That night they slept in tolerable comfort, but it was merely a trick of their tormentor to lull them into false security. When, on the succeeding night, they heard no noises, they began to flatter themselves that the devil was driven out, and prepared accordingly to take up their quarters for the whole winter in the palace. 
These symptoms on their part became the signal for renewed uproar among the fiends. On the 1st of November, they heard something walking with a slow and solemn pace up and down the withdrawing room, and immediately afterwards a shower of stones, bricks, mortar, and broken glass pelted about their ears. On the 2nd, the steps were again heard in the withdrawing room, sounding to their fancy very much like the treading of an enormous bear, which continued for about a quarter of an hour. This noise having ceased, a large warming-pan was thrown violently upon the table, followed by a number of stones and the jawbone of a horse. Some of the boldest walked valiantly into the withdrawing-room, armed with swords and pistols, but could discover nothing. They were afraid that night to go to sleep, and sat up making fires in every room, and burning candles and lamps in great abundance, thinking that, as the fiends loved darkness, they would not disturb a company surrounded with so much light. They were deceived, however. Buckets of water came down the chimneys and extinguished the fires, and the candles were blown out. They knew not how. Some of the servants who had betaken themselves to bed were drenched with putrid ditch-water as they lay, and arose in great fright, muttering incoherent prayers, and exposing to the wondering eyes of the commissioners their linen all dripping with green moisture and their knuckles red with the blows they had at the same time received from some invisible tormentors while they were still speaking there was a noise like the loudest thunder or the firing of a whole park of artillery upon which they all fell down upon their knees and implored the protection of the almighty one of the commissioners then arose, the others still kneeling, and asked in a courageous voice, and in the name of God, who was there, and what they had done that they should be troubled in that manner. No answer was returned, and the noises ceased for a while. At length, however, as the commissioner said, the devil came again, and brought with it seven devils worse than itself. Being again in darkness, they lighted a candle and placed it in the doorway, that it might throw a light upon the two chambers at once. But it was suddenly blown out, and one commissioner said that he had seen the similitude of a horse's hoof striking the candle and candlestick into the middle of the chamber, and afterwards making three scrapes on the snuff to put it out. Upon this the same person was so bold as to draw his sword, but he asserted positively that he had hardly withdrawn it from the scabbard before an invisible hand seized hold of it and tugged with him for it and prevailing struck him so violent a blow with the pommel that he was quite stunned then the noises began again upon which with one accord they all retired into the presence chamber where they passed the night praying and singing psalms they were by this time convinced that it was useless to struggle any longer with the powers of evil that seemed determined to make Woodstock their own. These things happened on the Saturday night, and being repeated on the Sunday, they determined to leave the place immediately and return to London. By Tuesday morning early, all their preparations were completed, and shaking the dust off their feet, and devoting Woodstock and all its inhabitants to the infernal gods, 
they finally took their departure. Many years elapsed before the true cause of these disturbances was discovered. It was ascertained at the restoration that the whole was the work of Giles Sharp, the trusty clerk of the commissioners. This man, whose real name was Joseph Collins, was a concealed royalist and had passed his early life within the bowers of Woodstock, so that he knew every hole and corner of the place, and the numerous trap-doors and secret passages that abounded in the building. The commissioners, never suspecting the true state of his opinions, but believing him to be revolutionary to the backbone, placed the utmost reliance upon him, a confidence which he abused in the manner above detailed to his own great amusement and that of the few cavaliers whom he let in to the secret. End of chapter 4, part 1, recording by Bill Mosley, Llano County, Texas, USA.